Gloria, thank you. What a wonderful reminder that there's a Jesus there that we can tell our troubles to, our sorrows to, our joys to. Praise God for that. Would you take your Bibles? Let's let's meet at Mark chapter 11. We're back in our friend, back in our friend, the gospel of Mark. And when you arrive there, would you stand as we honor his word together as we look at verses 1 to 11, picking up where we left off back in May. Mark chapter, one, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will enter it, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So Mark, we are now back in Mark after a brief stint in 10 of the Psalms over the summer in the Psalm series. And we also spent... Five weeks in that little tiny letter of Jude, which as we've gone through it, I I assure you, is not so tiny. Much going on. But we're back in Mark. And believe it or not, Mark, there's 16 chapters here. Mark 11 starts the final section of this book. And there may be some of you that really like hard data. Well, this is for you. The entire Gospel of Mark has 678 verses. Mark 11 to 16 covers the last week of Jesus' life from this point until his resurrection. 283 verses out of the 678. So 41.7% of the gospel of Mark deals with the last week of Jesus' life prior to his resurrection. That's significant. It's almost been said, and one commentator actually said this, that the first 10 chapters are really the introduction. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie where the introduction begins really late in the movie, but that's kind of what's, what's happening here when it begins to get to the part of true significance. And so when we think about that Jesus' birth, his birth, his life, his three-year, three-and-a-half-year ministry, I should say, all of that that's taken place this last week, Mark has chosen by the Holy Spirit to show how significant it is it is. So Now, those of you who have been in church world for a while, Mark 11, normally when do we preach on this and when do we learn about this? That's Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday the week before Easter. So that part 
of the Christian calendar is actually keeping in, in proper chronology of it. But we're, we're looking at this, and we see that even if this passage is preached in October, you're going to find some significant truths and significant hard truths that come out of this. So why call this sermon the fact that Jesus came in tragic triumph? Well, clearly when he's walking in, or I, I should say riding in, the rest of them are walking in, he's entering into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. Everybody is rejoicing. You're seeing these words, Hosanna. All of this will explain, by the way. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, all of the city broke out into this praise. So there is a triumph that's there. But in that triumph, there's a shadow over it all. And it really starts in verse 1. Where it says, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem. So earlier I read out of Psalm 122. And in Psalm 122, verse 6, it talks about that we are to do something that has never been asked of anything else. In fact, this is the only time in the the entire Bible that we are called to pray for a city. Psalm 122, 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the holy city of God. What makes this so difficult is that Jerusalem has not always been a place that has been receptive to the things of God. The prophets have been slain there. The word has been rejected there. And pretty soon we're going to see that Jesus himself, the Son of God, is going to be crucified there. He's going to be raised again. And I love it when we sing that song in Christ alone. When it talks about up from the grave, he rose again. I don't know, we're we're not a very uh, animated people, us Baptists, but that could get us going, couldn't it? Up from the grave, he rose again. There's some zing that comes across us in 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 our lives and in our hearts and in our spirits that realize that that's our hope. Everything else could have happened just as it is, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then none of it really is going to be of any more significance than Lincoln signing anything or Washington doing anything. Any other dignitary doing something good, it's not going to be ultimate and it's not going to be eternal. All of the good things that have been done by our presidents and by our dignitaries, we, the benefits of those end as soon as we die. But not this. And so when Jesus is coming in, Jerusalem, there is going to be something really good that's going to happen in Jerusalem. But in the meantime, there have been a lot of troubling things that have happened. And the disciples knew it. If you go back to Mark 10, uh, verses 32 to 34, Jesus again is foretelling his death. And they were on the road, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. So they knew that going up to Jerusalem was a death sentence. And the Apostle Paul knew that as well Um, later on in Acts 20, verse 22, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders and saying goodbye to them. He says there, behold, I'm going up to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. We may expect that from other cities that have not a history of following the things of God or even being really planted by God himself, and yet Jerusalem itself, the holy city of God, was going to be one of those cities among many that was going to bring imprisonment and afflictions. Paul wasn't surprised they crucified the Son of God there. So Jerusalem, the holy city of God, did not receive God's messengers well. So the disciples knowing what was going on, think about this and put yourself in that position. The disciples knowing what was going on may have thought that Jesus, who seemed to be in such control of everything, I mean, after all, they had seen him feed 5,000 men, 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. They saw him still the storm. They saw him walk on the water. They saw Jesus as truly king in control. This could have led them to think that Jesus really didn't understand what was going on. Did you re- do you really understand? Even though he said it, if you knew that this was going to happen, if I knew that if I were to go to a certain place that something was going to happen to me, I would avoid that place at all costs. Not only would I avoid that place, suppose I would say, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, and, I, and I'm going to go, and if you ever set foot here in Lexington, Kentucky again, then something bad's going to happen to you. I wouldn't even go to that state. I wouldn't even get, I wouldn't get near it. I wouldn't cross the Mississippi. I wouldn't do any of that. Would you? Well, I'll show them. Sure. Okay, fine. You go do that. Me, on the other hand, I would stay way away from that. And yet here, Je- here Jesus is saying that he's drawing near to Jerusalem. In fact, it says there he set his face to Jerusalem. And it may, you may wonder if anybody's going to put themselves in that position knowing that this is what's going to happen if you ever go back there and you're willing to go back there. Jesus, are you sure you're okay? Do we need to go see a doctor? Or do, you, do you need to check out your therapist? Because this does not seem like something that a rational person would do. And yet what we're going to find out is not, Jesus is not only in control, not, not you know, cool, calm Jesus in control. This is actually part of how he is organizing things to bring about a bit of what was being talked about and screamed at him when he was coming in, riding in that triumphal journey. So look at verse 2 where it says, he's telling these two disciples uh, to go on a mission. So you're to go in a village, it's in front of you, immediately as you enter, you will find a cult. They didn't say, I want you to go look for a cult. Hear what's being said here. Go look for a cult, Hope hope it goes well. You will find a cult, sounds good, on which, on which no one has ever sat. There's a significance to that as well. I mean, it's Jesus. There's no wasted words here. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Well, what happened? What happened was not an accident. Not a coincidence. Jesus was not simply saying something arbitrary to give them some busy work to do, right? You've been on the receiving end of that, just our busy work, you know, where you look busy, but this isn't really mattering. It matters. All of it matters. And you see in verse 4, they went away. Guess what? You will find a cult. They found a cult. 
tied at a door at a door outside the street and they untied it so they were obedient to what they heard and some of those who were standing there said to them what are you doing and tying the colt and they told them what Jesus had said and they let him go so everything that Jesus sent them to do on mission came to full fruition it was a beautiful thing to say they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it so what's the purpose here well Not only was this showing how obedient these disciples were, which we need to, and Jesus tells us to do something. It may sound outlandish, it may sound arbitrary. We may even, when it comes to fruition, we may think, well, that's a coincidence. You know, that's the devil tempting us to say, well, that's a coincidence. This was fulfillment of prophecy, but also strengthening the disciples. Well, the cult was talked about all the way back in Zechariah 9. You know, in the minor prophets, you know, that portion of the Bible that we tend to avoid because we don't understand it right away. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the parallelism there where you're saying the same thing twice in different ways, that's because we need to hear it more than once. We're a forgetful lot. We need to have it drilled down. All the way back in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, it talks about how the colt was tied up. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, now who holds a scepter? Kings hold scepters. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and he shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11 then goes on to talk about the tying of the colt, but when we look at never sat upon it. Now, you're not going to find anything in Scripture that talks about that Jesus had to find a colt that never sat upon. But there was an understanding, there was a ritual, there was a tradition back in that day that anybody, that anything that was going to be used for a sacred purpose had never been used before, was to have never been used before. And so that's why it was important for this. So Jesus is clearly setting something up. So even though his enemies were, were prevalent, he made sure that even along the way, he was showing everybody that he was in complete control. It may not have seemed like it. Jesus, why are you going to Jerusalem? You know what's going to happen when you go to Jerusalem. Are, are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you're getting it? He's, he would, I don't know if he'd ever say something like this, but this sounds like some of you. Guys, I got it. I got it. You hang in there and you watch what happens. I got it. And I think every so often we need to be reminded from his word as we read it. He's got us. He's got it and he's got us. Now, notice too, there's, there's this little group that's here. It's these folks that are standing by asking, what are you doing? So missionaries, if you happen to listen to a missionary talk, they're going to talk to you about persons of peace. And what that is, is that when you're going into a new place, a new surrounding, a new culture, and you're trying to get some sort of grounding, some sort of footing for a gospel witness there, then you're going to rely on people who are already there on the ground, persons of peace, to be able to help be kind of a gateway. It could be a person of peace, a household of peace, to be able to help you with individuals, to be able to help you with households and neighborhoods and communities, the marketplace, wherever that may be. And you're looking at this, and this is, where, this is what's happening is that 
These folks here, what are you doing? They could have said, that doesn't belong to you. They could have said, you need to tell me some more because this sounds a little fishy. But they said, go ahead. Just those little pieces right there can be so helpful to you when you're witnessing to your neighbor or when you're saying, I'm going to prayer my community. I'm going to go on mission, whether it's to China or to Aurora. Wherever it is, God provides those people, those persons of peace to be able to do that. We're going to talk more about how on Wednesday night about how God has provided those persons of peace in the Scripture, but also hear some other stories. But think about the world situation right now when you're when you're looking at how everything is setting up. Do you believe that the culture wants to hear from Jesus or do you think the culture wants to silence him? I think by and large the culture wants to silence him. I don't think the culture really wants to hear anything about it or they want to say that Jesus really said something else, not what he said here, but no, he's really like this and what they're really trying to do is cram Jesus into what they want him to be. We gotta be careful about that. But here's something more on where I think you are. Do you really believe that Jesus is in control? Well, I hope so, because sometimes you may have a governor that may go against what you're thinking, a president that may go against what you think. You may have a mayor that goes against what you think. You may have schools that are going against what you think. You may have medical practices that are going against what you think and where you think they should be going. And you know, you, we can say in church world, uh-huh, yeah, I think God's in control, but yet we step foot out of there and we see the, the blitzkrieg of what's happening in this world at every front and every way of everything that God is being said in the, uh, saying in this world. And I know that there may be some of you, if not all of you, who may be wondering, God, do you really have this? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. I see that you have this, but I don't see where you have this. Here's another thing that this passage is going to be able to help you with. What Jesus has done, Jesus is actually doing something that's really different from him. I was, I was watching, uh, I watched a lot of college football yesterday, and it was glorious. It was just fantastic. It was just, just what the doctor just what the doctor ordered. I don't know why I hadn't had a chance to watch a lot of college football, but every so often, what I've, I notice is, is that these, just, just, let's just take a defense, okay? So a defense is normally, you know, they're, they're there and they're watching a lot of film, a lot of tape, a lot of whatever it is. They don't have to do tape now, but they're watching a lot of film and they're saying, boy, every time that they line up in this formation, they always do this. Every time they line up in this formation, they always do this, this and that and all that. And then invariably what happens? Well, they changed something up. The offense changed something up. And the defense was like, I, oh, I thought every time they, they did this, then they're going to do this. And they switch it up. And it's just like, it's so amazing. Well, people are going to adjust. But Jesus had set a pattern. And the pattern was this. Whenever he healed someone, what did he do? He withdrew. He withdrew. And then what did he tell the people that he healed? Go out and tell everybody, get that bullhorn. If it was invented back then, go out and get that bullhorn and let everybody know. No, what does he tell them? Don't say anybody. Don't say anything. Because think about the times when Jesus did a miracle, such as um, feeding of the 5,000 
or raising Lazarus from the dead, which, by the way, all of this that's going on here is in the vapor trail of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What did they want to do to Jesus when he fed the 5,000? They wanted to make him king. So there's a political thing here. That's why when you read this, on the surface, it sounds so hopeful. But it's not quite. Because you look at verse 8. And here they spread their cloaks on the road. And the other spread leafy branches. What are those leafy branches? What do we normally call them? The kids sometimes walk in with the little palms. Hooray for the palms. And, it, and, and that they cut into fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Now, what's that mean? Thank you. That's it. That's, that's spot on. I don't know if you heard her. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 118, 26. And, and so, they're, so now they're starting to kind of piece together things. But let me get back to this because I left something hanging. I'm like, I better get back to this. So Jesus, what does he do? He forces them to make a move. He don't, he's not withdrawing here. He knows they know the prophecies. And now you do too. At least you should. I just read them to you. We, they, they know the prophecies. He knew they knew the prophecies, and yet here he is doing like Zechariah. He's on a colt. It's untied. Genesis 49, riding in, never been sat upon. I know what that means. And Jesus is now not hiding, not withdrawing. He's forcing them to act. I'm the Messiah that you all have been preaching about. So if you hear anybody that's saying, well, Jesus never said he was the Son of God, Listen, that means that they're lazy in how they're approaching the word. Let's dig in and see what's being said. The religious leaders were well aware of what was going on. But they wanted to wait. Why? Because what was coming up was the Passover. Now, I recommend you reading Exodus 12 for the Passover. I will go into more detail about that as Holy Week comes down. But what I'll tell you this. Ten plagues, when the people of Israel were in Egypt, ten plagues all representing and all going in in accordance with some of the powers that Pharaoh's gods held to. and and, And God was coming along with these plagues one by one, tearing down these gods. Tearing down their power, tearing it down, tearing it down, little by little, little by little, to show that Pharaoh wasn't God, his gods weren't gods, there's one God. And it gets right to the end where it's the, 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 the uh, plague of the firstborn. So the angel of death was going to go by and take the firstborn of all the families, of all the livestock, firstborn of everything. Unless you had a perfect prescribed Passover lamb and you sacrificed it, you took the blood from that lamb, put it on the doorposts. And when the angel of death would see the blood, you hear the gospel in this, everybody? When the angel of death sees the blood on the doorposts, the doorposts for our hearts now, the doorposts of their homes, then pass over and death would not touch them. Hear the gospel in that? In the early church, they would preach out of Exodus 12 on Easter Sunday morning. You see why? But they wanted to wait until Passover was over with, and Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm going to be that Passover lamb. 
Warren Wiersbe says this, though they wanted to wait until Passover is over, Jesus would be the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb sacrificed before the people of Israel would be set free from the, the, the tyranny and the slavery to Egypt. Jesus would be the Passover lamb to save them. So when, so when Jesus is walking in, it's all falling into place, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So everything is falling into place. Everybody is getting excited. But here's the problem. Saved from what? Elections roll around. And we look at the candidates and we think, if this guy gets into office, everything's going to be better. Every four years we go through this charade. Every four years we think it's going to be better. Everything's, we can trust this guy. I saw his advertisements. He's got to be telling the truth, right? So you're you're going through this whole mess and you're thinking politically, this is going to be great. If I get my guy in, it's going to fix everything. And that's what they were doing here. The palm leaves. What in the world was that about? Well, over time, it really started back about 150 years before this. If you read any of your history books, you may have heard about the Maccabean Revolt. And really what it was, was this guy Simon Maccabeus was, was really tired of the Romans coming in and putting the emperor's image in the temple. And if you know anything, don't make any graven images. Well, not only in the, the Holy Land, but they were starting to put it in the temple. And finally, they were starting to get sick of it until this national hero rose up, Simon Maccabeus. And, and he and his brother uh, Judas, they started moving and, and working, and they basically shoved Rome right into the Mediterranean. And for about 100 years, they were free. That's the deliverance they were thinking about. It was a political deliverance. So ever since then, when they thought a new Messiah was going to come in to deliver them, they put the leaves on the ground, and that's what was going on here. It sounded so good, but it makes you realize that five days later, these, these same people were shouting, crucify him. Because a political leader that was going to be strong enough to run Rome out wouldn't allow himself to be arrested and crucified. They, it, so they, they, this is, we tend to think, Lord, I want you to save me. Why do you want him to save you? Do you want him to save you? Because regardless of what may happen here, I'm going to have a home in heaven and he's going to live in me now and I'm going to serve him with all I have. Are you wanting them to save you because you're in debt? You're wanting him to save you because you don't like how the country's going. So let's bring a guy in to get the country on track. I don't like how, whatever. Whatever the, the, the cultural issues that are going on. You may think, this guy, I want, to say, I want to be saved by him. Here's one. I want to be saved by him because he'll cure me of my cancer. He'll cure me of my ulcer. He'll cure me of my acne. He'll cure me of my receding hairline. Whatever it is, he'll cure me. He is going to make things better now. That's called in theological terms a realized eschatology, that all the stuff that is promised in heaven, we want to have it now. But we may not get any of that till heaven. I don't know. But I do know this, is that we have to make sure that when we are looking at this, we may find ourselves just like this group saying, Jesus is going to come and save me. But what are your terms and conditions of salvation? Here are the terms and the conditions. Surrender. Submission. All that you are. 
to all that he is. Because if you think about it, when you've been trying to fix your life, how well does that go? You can't get out of your own way. We have our own expectations. We have our own temptations that take us hither and yon. There's only one that can rescue us. There's only one that can save us. So where's the tragedy in this? The tragedy is this. Their Savior came. The tragedy is that we needed salvation to begin with because this earth is broken and cursed and that we need to be rescued. That's a tragedy. The other tragedy is is that they were so close and yet so far away. Hosanna, Lord, save us. But they had a different idea of what salvation was. Do you? Do you? You know what salvation, how you know that you have gotten salvation? It's because repent and believe the gospel. Turn from who you are, turn to who he is. And that's what this is all about. That's what we have to see. And so as we move on, we're going to see little by little, piece by piece, step by step, how Jesus is going closer to the cross and the shadow that is looming a little bit in the distance now is going to be more and more and more. I got up here a little later than usual, and I'm going to end a little later than usual, but I want to say one more thing, if I may. There's a preacher in Atlanta that many of you may know about who has started um, having a conference that is basically trying to um, help those who who may be in the homosexual lifestyle to find a way to be able to come and be a part of their church. They, they can say it, but that's, that's really what's happening. They've, and they're starting to have a conference to be able to help people reconcile. That's what they are saying, reconcile that. And this pastor, who actually has meant a lot to me over the years, not anymore, but he's meant a lot to me over the years because he's been really helpful in a lot of leadership matters and a lot of, uh, well, a lot of biblical matters, honestly, at, at least at first. And I really had a lot of respect for his father, who, uh, who preached in Atlanta for a long, long time and is now, just now went to be with the Lord. Name droppers, I hear you. Well, one of the things that he said was is that, the, is that Christianity is about drawing circles and not lines. What does he mean? That means Christianity is intended to be as inclusive as possible. Because that's how Jesus was. He was as inclusive as possible. I would recommend that if you hear people like this, because this, this gentleman has a humongous, I don't think I've ever said that word behind a pulp, he's got a humongous platform. A lot of people listen to him, a lot of people download his podcast, and those that, well, a lot of people listen to him. I want to say this, when you start representing Jesus, is that he was completely inclusive and never came against anyone, which may not have been what he meant, but I want to say this. When Jesus did draw lines. If you remember the adulterous woman, he tells that he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, people lock in on that. That means we shouldn't be judgmental. You've sinned. Why, why are you telling me when I've sinned? They, they focus on that, and yet you, you, you turn a bit, and he begins to have this conversation with this woman who's left alone because everybody dropped their rocks and left. 
yeah, Jesus, include everybody. But he turns around and then he says this, go and sin no more. Jesus loves us with the truth. Jesus loves us with a design that he put in place. And he says, if you stay within this design, it will go well for you. The moment you step outside of it, that's sin. So sometimes when people think salvation is just believing that Jesus loves you regardless of where you are, he does love you regardless of where you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He is going to tug and pull. And where it talks about when, when in, in Psalm 32, that it says, where I, like, I felt like my bones wasted away. You just don't feel like, I don't have anything holding me up. Ugh. That's God pressing in on you to bring you to where you need to be. That is an act of grace. That is an act of love on his part to bring you to where you need to be. So Jesus is walking in here, and he's not thinking about his own protection. He's, he is not mentally unstable by going to a place where he knew that they were going to kill him. On the contrary, Jesus comes in and he says, here's the line. You're either going to be a sinner saved by grace or you are going to be a sinner who is lost. That's the line. And I'm going to include you, but I'm going to include you only when you have taken care of what I have done and you receive the grace that I have given to you. I will save you from your sin, and I will save you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where he is going. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So sometimes, I'm going to put it this way. You need to have your Jesus moment this morning. Some of you, you need to repent from your sin. You may name Christ, but there's that sin that is plaguing you. I can't, I can't let it be known. God already knows it. That sin that you're committing in private is as daylight to him and before him. But some of you, you may need to just turn your life over to Christ and just, just quit fiddling around. You know you need to do it. You know he's there. You know, you know, but you know, but you know, but you know. And he will give you the strength to do whatever it is to follow what he commands. Just ask him and surrender. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for all that you've accomplished. And Lord, when you say, when we say, Lord, save us, it's on your terms. We come to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for being virgin born, perfect, crucified, dead, buried, raised again, ascended, interceding, and coming again. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are and all that you have done. May we not leave here without knowing for sure that we are yours and not leave out of here without knowing for sure that we are clean before you. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of obedience. Today is the day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and let's commit our lives to him as, as God has called us to, reflecting on the fact that he has come to save us, to save us from our, this world, yes, to save us from hell, yes, but ultimately to save us from ourselves. Let's sing together.